Andrew, can I make one quick comment? I'll stand back a little bit. This is on a, a long comment while you do your last arrangements there. We're going to try to have people just come to the mic. I know that sounds a little bit formal, but rather than try to race around here with this handheld mic and people start asking their question or making their comment before the mic gets to them, if you can just simply walk over to the mic, if you have something, then Andrew will recognize you and you can just proceed in that fashion. So we'll just do it that way. Thank you. And we're on. <laughs> Deaf as a post, but yes. Oh. The sound's not on? Hello, hello? What's that? It, it needs some sound. Oh, okay. I, I need to speak. Oh, I hear something. Is me or is that dark? Nope, it's getting better. Crooked. I don't know what the opposite of discombobulated is. I've never seen combobulated as a word. I, I'm striving for combobulation now in context. Um, I was actually going to start with an apology because I realized in conversation with Terry this past week that the last two sessions that we haven't opened in prayer, and that is my fault in that I'm fine at the holiday Thanksgiving table, I'm fine at home, I'm fine one-to-one, -one, but when it comes to praying in front of my peers, I've yet to get to that comfort level. So when we talked about it, she volunteered. So I appreciate it very much, Terry. Um, for those of you who've been here throughout, uh, you know a little bit about what I'm trying to accomplish over these weeks, and that is finding moments in history where some unusual stuff, some heightened stuff is going on, and people respond with an unusual sense of grace and faith. And thus far, whether it's uh, an aspect of World War II, the outbreak of World War II, um, the Quakers, Mennonites beginning in the 1680s, who first on uh, 
biblical grounds, sought to abolish slavery long before the rest of the world was paying attention. And then last week, uh, we looked at the faith of Abraham Lincoln, who was not a church member, he didn't belong to any church, but nonetheless, uh, as is evident in his writings, uh, that he was very, very centered on his connection with his maker. So uh, this week, we're moving forward a, li a little chronologically, uh, beginning with uh, Lincoln. Um, as you'll know from the handout, hopefully everybody has it, if not, we can get it to you, um, that the primary focus of this week will ultimately be two brothers who in the year 1900 co-wrote a song. One of them wrote the melody, the other one wrote the lyrics. Um, we will get to the specifics of that song uh, in a bit, but first we're gonna preface uh, the creation of that song by setting the scene. Um, so, most of these uh, title cards are bits of lyrics, and in fact, you, uh, if you haven't figured it out by the time you've looked at the, the handout, you will soon enough understand what song it is that we are gonna be talking about. But that's not important for the moment, because we're, uh, we're gonna go back in time a little bit. And Jim Crow, we all have a, a certain appreciation of uh, at least the nomenclature, but it actually dates back uh, to an 1830s uh, play and song, and here in the 1840s was sheet music for it that celebrated the caricature of the African-American slaves at the time. So keep Jim Crow in mind. Meanwhile, in 1863, this is in his handwriting, Lincoln's draft of the ultimate Emancipation Proclamation, which was made on September 22nd, 1862, and went into effect on January 1st, 1863, where all of uh, those people being held in bondage, at least in the uh, Confederate seceded states, were declared free by proclamation of our president. So, 1865, the Civil War has ended. What you're going to discover in some of these slides, and I discovered in the last week as I was spending time in various online libraries, whether it's Yale's or Columbia's or places that have African-American studies departments, that there is a great difference between the images that African-Americans took of themselves and those that the popular culture did of them. So here we have a woman playing a nine-string banjo. Um, I can only presume that she was adept at it. Um, there wasn't a prop sitting in a studio. Um, so immediately after the Civil War was a period called Reconstruction, where Northern troops for about 10 years occupied the states that had seceded, and not surprisingly with African-Americans, former slaves, now registered to vote, that they were elected because there were sheer numbers. In, in, Carol in South Carolina, for instance, there were, I believe, six slaves to every white, uh, or six African-Americans to every Caucasian. Um, and so in state legislatures, and even in uh, the U.S. Houses of Congress, that there were African-Americans who were elected immediately after the Civil War. Well, on Harper's Weekly in 1874, this is how they depicted the newly elected uh, statesmen uh, who were former slaves. A year later, uh, this is the, somewhere on the side, um, it's a choir from New Orleans, um, and this was a, uh, 
a promotional piece that they did to mail around uh, to solicit uh, choir opportunities that obviously New Orleans, Louisiana had its own unique uh, experience and perspective on race um, and was far more inclusive in a lot of ways than other places. Meanwhile, in 1875, uh, same year as this photo was taken, that Congress enacted civil rights legislation and it would be the last time that, it, that they did that in almost a century until the 1960s. Um, and yes, it explains here, it was to make sure that nobody in any kind of uh, public fashion would be infringed upon. What do you know, about eight years later, the US Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. Meanwhile, uh, these are uh, a group of Jubilee singers from Fisk University uh, who were uh, a mainstay for gospel and spiritual music. And again, this is how the African-American community at the time wanted to portray themselves. This is how they wanted to express themselves. And this is what they did, 1775, 1780s, or 1880s, sorry. Meanwhile, Um, again, here are some self, some purposeful portraits uh, of black men as they were wanting to be depicted, but in the popular culture at the same time, um, cakewalk songs, darky songs, and coon songs were the rage. Um, I should preface this by saying I weeded out the most incredibly offensive stuff and tried to find things that were the flavor of the tenor of the times without getting in people's grill about it. But uh, as you can see between the photographs uh, of African Americans and these caricatures that are on the sheet music of the day, that there's a, a, a popular image that is at odds with the self-image. But it's important because these two will, diver will, will converge and will clash all too soon. Um, so as we get close to 1890, um, things are going to change dramatically. Um, in the 1880s, uh, Pullman porters came into uh, prominence, and for an African-American man, that was a pinnacle uh, profession. It, it afforded security, money, travel, and the gentleman seated there is uh, wearing his, his Pullman Porter uniform with a wife or a sister, it's not quite clear. Meanwhile, um, as well in popular song, that there became a whole series of uh, songs and or musicals about this new traveling culture on the Pullman cars. So again, we're progressing through the 1880s. Things will take a dramatic turn very soon more of the popular culture stuff, which whether it's white men wearing blackface or even African-American performers putting on blackface, that was the type of music that sold and the type of traveling shows that people went to. All right. What is coming up in the 1890s 
as Jim Crow laws across the South go into effect with the caricatures and the popular culture, there is a, dis a serious disrespect going on between the dominant white culture and the African-American culture. And when I say disrespect, I mean by the 1890s that the former slaves, now freed for 25 years, are in the South in physical danger if they run afoul of the sensibilities of somebody who is white. And a reality for this next, for the next several decades, but the build up to 1900, which is important because that's when this song will be written, the decade of the 1890s to 1900 saw uh, an increase in, in lynchings for any kind of offense, whether it was looking askance at somebody, whether it was being odd, um, that it was scapegoating of the worst kind, and whatever transgressions any of the victims of lynching might have done, that they never saw the in inside of a courthouse. In fact, some of them were taken physically out of jails where they were being held because the guards couldn't hold back the mobs. So there is a slide coming up that it was a postcard that the culture of the day in the South in the 1890s through to the 1920s, in fact, had public executions as sport and thousands of people would turn out and they would tur turn news photographs into postcards to send to their friends. Now, th there's, there's an awful immediacy to this. And in fact, when, when we talked about slavery um, two weeks ago, that it, it was pleasantly abstract. Um, it was Mennonites and Quakers in the 1700s, 1600s talking about it. And our, our connection to it is muffled by the years. And there's not a whole lot of, of imagery that um, is, is visceral. There is, however, imagery which is visceral to, to this era because photography had come into being. So, just FYI. So, if you want to read the left, that's important text. On the right is a postcard that chronicles something that happened here in Ohio. Um, and the point in going through all of this darkness, and it is meant to be darkness, it is, it is meant to give us a sense of just how ungodly and how depraved this era was where total strangers would, because of the color of somebody else's skin, make them the lottery winner from the Shirley Jackson short story, and somehow by killing that total stranger, it would expiate the sins of the community. All right. So that was 1890, 1896, okay, 1895 in Louisiana, a gentleman who technically was what they called an octroon in the day and age. He was one-eighth African-American in his blood. He was seven-eighths Caucasian in his blood, but because of Louisiana law in the 1890s, 
He was considered colored and therefore was not permitted to ride in the whites only trains, train cars. And so on purpose with the backing of a civil liberties uh, effort, this gentleman who could pass for white and had, he was seven eighths white in his blood, in his genetics, um, he went into the whites only car with his ticket. And when the conductor asked for his ticket, he gave the conductor the ticket and said, oh, by the way, I'm one eighth black. And he, he was then thrown off the train. Well, he was moved to a, a mixed car. So he brought suit. Uh, his name was Homer Adolph Plessy. And in 1896, uh, the spring of 1896, that court case had found its way to the Supreme Court, Plessy versus Ferguson. So in 1896, this is the makeup of the Supreme Court with this gentleman, a uh, very petite man, sitting as the chief justice. Now, the, uh, the pleadings were done in April. The uh, ruling came back in May of 1896. It was seven to one in favor of Mr. Ferguson um, that Mr. Plessy had not been injured by being moved to a different car, and they created, in this ruling, something called separate but equal. However, the one justice who voted against it, and it was seven to one because somebody had a, a relative who took ill, so he wasn't there for the final vote. So one justice said, I don't think so, and dissented. And in part, this is uh, what he had to say regarding um, the U.S. Constitution and race and who we are, who we should be as a peoples. Subsequently, in 1954, um, he was uh, resurrected uh, in legal circles as prescient and a hero, but in, 19, in 1896, the law of the land was separate and equal, is fine. Okay, here's just 1890s photograph of a Philadelphia school, colored school. They had separate schools for the colored and for the white. Likewise, in rural Virginia, here's what qualified as separate but equal. Meanwhile, uh, here in Ohio, there was a gifted young woman, a vocalist named Lola Jackson, who beyond her church wished to be able to share her skill and perhaps make a living as a singer. And as the Cleveland Gazette of the day and age in 1896 uh, did this article, that uh, fate was against her. And on your handout, there's a little bit more about her. Um, she does intersect, like three degrees of Kevin Bacon, um, with the main characters that we're gonna get to in a second. But again, somebody who, simply because of her ethnicity and the day and age that she was born, that she was not permitted to even try for that pursuit of happiness. 1896. All right. All of these are in the 1896 to 1900 range. Again, this is popular culture of the late 19th century. 
and it's, it's done to, be a it's to illustrate the dramatic difference between what is going on here and what these two gentlemen will do in 1900. And again, these are the ones that I, th I thought were safe for, you know, reasonable audiences. There, there's stuff out there from the era that is just vile to my sensibilities. So, <laughs> on the right-hand side, uh, the circle photographs are the two actual uh, singers. In the center, it's the characters that, th that they do. And you might notice, although it's not quite the resolution that I was aiming for, but the, the guy who's wearing the white shirt, he corks his face. He makes himself blacker to do his act because that's what was desired by the audiences, or so was thought. So again, this is how the popular culture thinks of African-American colored blacks when it comes to music, when it comes to stage, when it comes to themes. All this will change. All this will change rather beautifully, rather soon. So this is 1899. Big hit, they say, according to the research. All right. So again, just a reminder of what was going on in the real world where two races in the Midwest, in the South, in the West rubbed up against each other and did not have a comfortable shared understanding of how they could get along. So in 1899, one of the Memphis papers says, this has to change. So, as I alluded to at the beginning of the 1890s, uh, there was an uptick in the rhetoric and in the violence. And so, just like uh, the caricatures in the song covers uh, were all pervasive, so too uh, were the Jim Crow laws that mostly went in, began to go into effect around 1890. And people in the South, most especially, began to take the law, quote unquote, into their own hands and would lynch. And the, the rationales for breaking into a jail to gank somebody out and give them street justice were exhaustive. And this very intrepid woman, a bit of a hero in uh, civil rights circles, for a long time, she was a compiler of all of the media accounts of what was going on and would produce an annual report of just the debauchery of men against men. 
and the numbers, you know, 115 this year, 131 the next year. So all during the 1890s. This is a front and center reality if you live in the South, which includes Georgia and Florida. Our heroes, which we will get to momentarily, are in Florida. Um, again, uh, this gentleman was a Chinese minister, Chinese ambassador, for lack of a better word, to the United States for almost 20 years. In 1901, he gave a very lengthy interview um, and was asked about lynching, which continued unabated. And his fuller quotation is on the handout. He, he was just appalled. So against this backdrop of caricature and violence against people of color, there are two brothers, first born in 1871, the second born in 1873. The elder brother's named James Weldon, his brother is named John Rosamond, but is named is called Rosamond. They thought it was going to be a girl. They kept the name Rosamond, even though it came, he was a boy. Um, so he's the most famous boy named Rosamond, probably, in the world. Um, and they grew up in Jacksonville. And at the time, Jacksonville did not have any education for people of color above eighth grade. So First, James Weldon, and then his brother, Rosamond, uh, were sent off to Atlanta to go to high school. Uh, both of them then went on to college. And ultimately, James Weldon Johnson, among other things, got his law degree, was the first uh, African-American lawyer uh, admitted to the Florida Bar, um, and a whole host of other notables. But um, he first, out of uh, college with his masters, uh, went back to Jacksonville and became the principal of the uh, school that he'd gone to for, the colored school that he'd gone to for kindergarten or such, first grade through eighth. And he got approval to expand it to 12th grade. So it was now full 12 years worth of school. Ultimately, um, he oversaw the splitting off of the high school, um, again, for the coloreds. Um, and he was principal of that uh, until his music career uh, dominated. How did I get in there? So, the missing slides um, have all of the sheet music covers that James Weldon and his brother Rosamond did by themselves and with another African-American composer named Bob Cole. From 1901 to 1906, um, they were among the most prolific for Broadway um, of all composers. But, and again, there's slides which got eaten this morning. Um, in January of 1900, in Jacksonville, they were asked to write a little song for the January 19th school play at the Colored Elementary School. 500 children attend. So they have a deadline of writing something in just a few weeks to commemorate 
Lincoln's birthday. The song that they, they write together is Lift Every Voice and Sing, which some of you might know, some of you might not know. Uh, the, the lyrics never mention race at all. The lyrics only speak about trials that we go through and the ascendant hope uh, that the Lord provides um, at the end of those trials. And James Weldon wrote the, the lyrics. His brother uh, was the more musical, musically inclined, and he wrote the, the melody. Um, and so they did this on deadline for a school play, essentially, um, in January of 1900. The, the climate at the time was one of literal violence against blacks, against coloreds. And in fact, the following year, James Weldon uh, was um, captured, if you will, by uh, some whites in Jacksonville, and they were wanting to lynch him. He was able to get out of it, but uh, he was educated, and he was therefore deemed uppity. So somebody took offense at his uppityness. Um, now, as for those of you who are aware of the song, uh, you might also be aware that in some quarters, especially in the African-American world, that Lift Every Heart, Lift Every Voice and Sing um, has a second moniker that uh, literally it is called the Negro National Anthem. And here, um, the author of the lyrics um, to somebody who was like an adopted daughter uh, explains that for him, there's only one national anthem, that's the Star Spangled Banner, that uh, he and his brother thought of the song as, as a hymn um, and that uh, that's the language that he always used for it. Um, so even if other people uh, want to claim it or label it, uh, an anthem for the African-American experience. For him, it is just a hymn. So, I feel like we've missed a chapter here. Um, 1900, they do this song. It is otherwise under the radar uh, at first um, because James Weldon and Rosamond, they go off to Broadway to be uh, Tin Pan Alley kind of uh, songwriters, but unlike the minstrel show kind of stuff that was going on before them, um, they are classical musicians and um, look to do songs that are not uh, demeaning of anybody's uh, race or background, but you know, uh, they seek commonality. And that's one of the reasons for their success in, in that 1901 to 1906 period. Um, and in fact, uh, Rosamond has so much success that he's invited to London where he ends up uh, living for many years as a symphony person, symphony conductor, before moving back stateside. James Weldon um, is later guises one of the catalysts of what becomes the Harlem Renaissance, 
um, and uh, an author uh, of both prose and poetry um, that is considered part of the canon of African-American literature. And that's okay. That's fine. It's all good. It's all good. Um, and uh, he and his brother were among the founders, among the first 170 members of the American Society for Composers, Authors, and Producers, so ASCAP, the, the music union. Um, he was one of the first two blacks, and with his brother, they were two of the first six blacks of the 170 um, to join. Then um, he got involved politically, and actually apolitically, um, he was U.S. consul to several uh, South American, Central American nations, uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela chiefly. Um, and when he came back, he joined the brand new NAACP as uh, a field director and worked at the national level for over a decade. So his former boss, Joel Springarn, um, in observing just what a polymath this gentleman was and uh, the, the many facets, the many talents, the many gifts that he had and shared, um, wished that uh, there wasn't the inhibition of the day that uh, perhaps somebody with his uh, abilities that they would do well in politics. In 1933, uh, Weldon's autobiography came out. Um, it is still in print today. Um, and it's a pretty candid look at uh, his, his life, his failures, his successes. And a few years later, in 1938, he passed. And in the next issue of The Nation, his friend and colleague wrote this about him, comparing him to all the other leading lights of the era W.E.B. Dubois and others. Um, he held him up to be a, a unique talent. Likewise, uh, in the mid-50s, Rosamond passed. Um, he had one daughter who had this to say about her dad and his abiding connection to the song and her abiding connection to the song. Just out of curiosity, who here, off the top of their head, knows the song, knows of the song? Okay. I am tone deaf, and I tried as best I could to come up with MP3 kind of things to play, and I couldn't figure out the technology. Sure. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. 
Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers died. We have come over a way that with tears have been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who hast brought us thus far on the way, thou who hast by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we meet thee. Lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand true to our God, true to our native land. Thank so you, what do you, is native land Africa? No, uh, he, he's very proud to be American, but at the same time, um, I, I think in language that oppressed peoples, uh, not just African-Americans, but oppressed peoples any place, um, can find themselves in it. Um, but certainly that is one interpretation, but for, for him and what I've read, you know, native land is America. So in casting about online and in some books, it's interesting to find just how resonant this song is for many people, that for those who remember the 60s perhaps a little bit better than I do, um, that the song We Shall Overcome is one that I associate with the 60s for people of previous generation, uh, lift every voice and sing, holds an even deeper meaning for them. became enough of the cultural fabric that in the 1990s, R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco company, um, cloaked themselves in the imagery of the song and James Weldon's photograph. <sighs> Hour away from finishing everything the way it needed to be. <laughs> so. Part of, part of the power of what begins next Sunday and concludes the following Sunday, Holy Week, is the 
utter darkness that those who don't understand that Christ will be there transcendent, the darkness that envelops all of his followers and that in our lives envelops us when, when we lose sight, when we lose faith, that the sun with a capital S and an O-N will be waiting for us. And so for me, for this episode, for this week, my attraction to Rosamond and James Weldon was realizing that in a time and a place where just being alive as they were was a potential trigger for somebody to bring them harm and certainly around them um, as perhaps now you know the Trayvon Martin in Florida or um, too many places across our land that because of uh, ethnicity, because of dress, that all kinds of, of negative associations are made and that violence is visited upon uh, a, a generation that has been decimated, literally one in ten decimated in ways that growing up in the suburbs uh, that I was not aware of. So to come to understand and have some appreciation of Jacksonville in 1900 and what had preceded that with a popular culture that was demeaning, a uh, culture on the streets that was uh, emasculating and perhaps deadly and as Terry read, the lyrics talk about struggle. They talk about uh, the burdens that uh, have been borne, but they all, each verse and the chorus, all come back to a measure of hope and resilience. And somehow, um, despite the evidence to the contrary, that these two gentlemen, and as practiced as they were um, in writing poetry or writing music, at the time it wasn't quite their professions. One of them was still a high school principal. The other one was teaching music at a conservatory. Um, they weren't the toast of Broadway. That became you know, the next phase of both of their lives. But um, they, they were living in a place that was uh, hostile to them and uh, their kin. And yet, like Lincoln in his second inaugural address, rather than point fingers, rather than lay blame on the other for all my ills, all of our ills, that the, the language of Lincoln was one of inclusiveness and healing, and the language of the Johnson brothers is one of uh, forbearance and triumph. So for me, they are part of a chain that next week, um, the cross of nails here will be revealed, will be explained, and the title of the series 
will be rather dramatically explained, um, and they do relate. So for those of you who've been poking around on the internet, you can probably put all the pieces together, but um, as a novelist who likes to introduce strands, disparate ideas, and then try and bring them uh, to a vector where they all intersect, that has been the goal here. And I appreciate uh, your forbearance, uh, because perhaps at times wondering how this bleeds into the next, but uh, there is a through line. Um, and I I'm hoping that some of you are, you know, uh, not only with me, but also enjoying it as, as we move along. Um, any questions regarding the Johnson Brothers, the era of 1900, um, the song, if you know it or don't? I'm wondering how prominent in the uh, uh, black community, especially the civil rights movement of the last uh, half century, how aware were they of this and how what kind of prominence did it have? When you ask the question here, how many people have heard it? There's no one. Right. Uh, would that be true of the blacks or are they very acquainted? Um, for the black colored African-American community, up until the 1980s, um, this would be a song that every, that nine out of 10 would know. They would, they would know the first verse by heart. They would know the chorus. Most of them would know all three verses. Um, it was something that at the open of every NAACP chapter meeting, they would sing the national anthem, immediately followed by the Negro national anthem, as it was called informally. Um, so it was something, and that practice began in the 19 teens. 1900, the song was written, um, but it wasn't until some of those students themselves who were elementary school uh, went out um, and went back to uh, their churches that kind of like, uh, oh, uh, dandelion little things blowing in the breeze, that, that um, it was not a conscious effort by the brothers to market the song, although in 1902, in a bit of self uh, promotion, or uh, he was asked to write a, a little autobiograph autobiographical sketch. James Weldon, who did the lyrics, um, included mention of the song that my brother and I wrote a hymn called Lift Every Voice and Sing. But even though it was copyrighted in 1900, it was performed first in 1900, it wasn't until uh, somewhere World War I era that it began to, within the African-American community, grow. And so whether you were in Philadelphia or Dallas or, or Atlanta, um, it, it became a standard. And at least through the 60s and 70s, it was still considered part of the canon. But I think if you were to ask people in, in their 20s, African-Americans in their 20s today, that they, they wouldn't necessarily have that same, oh yeah, uh, because it, it, I, I don't know that it's, it's as ritualized today as it was for many decades in the 20th century. Yes, Jerry. Um, I uh, just have to, when, when you flashed that, the pictures of the, the minstrels, uh, what, as I was growing up in, in Apple Creek, just uh, you know, 30 miles over here, the American Legion put on a minstrel about oh, March, right between baseball and bas basketball seasons. And we loved, I look forward to that every year because it, we weren't making fun of the blacks, I didn't think. 
you know, there was a few jokes off, but I loved their music, uh, and I loved the way they talked, and I couldn't wait till I was old enough they would let me be in the program and, you know, paint my face black and, and the way to go. So I, I you know, I was kind of blown away when everything got so bad in, in the 60s uh, when I was in the, uh, medical school. But the, the thing that, are, are you going to get into the fact that how we've gone backwards with the blacks at this point? Well, in my opinion, our welfare system has destroyed the black male, destroyed the black family, and there's no respect for them, and they wind up in crime and drugs, and the, I think the welfare system did it. That's my opinion. Thank you. You got something, Jim? I wasn't going to add to that, but I, I have something else to say. Go ahead, if you want to comment on Jerry's uh, point, point that he was making. <clears throat> the Presbyterian Church USA hymn book, Lift Every Voice and Sing, is in our hymn book. I don't think I've ever been in a worship service when it was sung, but I'd very much like that to happen someday. It's in the section called National Songs. It comes after, right, right after, Eternal Father Strong to Save, and right before, Oh, beautiful for spacious skies. 563. If I was a better musician, I would sight read the melody and attempt to sing it. I am tempted to do that, but I'm not going to. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. No. no. <laughs> we have bidders. We could bid. Maybe at the Wakanda auction next year, I will bid my services to sight read this song. No, I'm not going to do it. Um, the stamp that you showed. Yes was accurate as far as the first lines. That, that was written in the key of A flat. This is in the hymn book in the key of G, starting on the seventh of that scale. And that, that's what throws me off. I can't quite pick out that opening run or I would sing it. But it is in the hymn book. I'm, I'm so pleased to see that. And I'm going to start lobbying that we might sing this some, some Sunday. Maybe Memorial Day Sunday would be a good time to do it. Or Juneteenth, June 18th. June 18th, June 18th. good idea. <laughs> um, in Texas, when news of the emancipation came, it, um, it was June 18th, and ever since then, it's been celebrated as Juneteenth. Again, um, the opportunity uh, to be with you these five weeks has, is and has been wonderful, and to be given a, a blank slate whereby I could come up with any theme or topic that I wanted. I did run it by Jim and, and others, but the, the trust has been humbling. And so I, I hope with this and, and every time to be earning your trust again and again, realizing that um, sometimes what you know feels linear in one's head, it takes a while in going through all the slides and sharing the information to 
help others uh, get the mental picture that uh, seems to make sense you know, for, from inside. Um, and to know that I'm coming at faith and uh, uh, I guess issues of crisis from an historical perspective and to be looking for moments, flashpoints, if you will, where the faith that, that I, I feel and that I see in others is getting severely tested and I wonder how I would respond. And certainly, um, I can't but project, and even then at a great distance, uh, what the experience for the generation coming out of slavery was like, or for those um, uh, born soon thereafter. But to get a sense of just what a cauldron it was for race relations um, at the turn of the 20th century, and that two brothers who were aware of what was going on around them um, found that their faith was so strong, both in God and in humanity, that uh, they could write something, dash it off fairly, but as uh, I think is included on this sheet, um, that James Weldon, who did the lyrics, as they were working together, he felt the spirit move him um, in a unique way. I mean, his language is a little bit different. He, he doesn't cite the Holy Spirit, but he talks about uh, how the words came and it was from beyond him. So for me, uh, the creation and the timing of the song um, are part of what makes it timeless. Um, and it is going to be a launch point for what follows next week. So um, looking ahead, Moonlight Sonata is the title of next week's final finale, finale for this. Um, it is pertinent. Um, it will be extremely focused. It will be on one place in a brief amount of time and the transformation that happens there and the message that they send to the larger world. Um, so if you're feeling industrious and you want to put the pieces together, you, you have enough information uh, to know where that place is uh, from what you have in your hand. But if you want to trust me and come with, with open eyes and open hearts, um, I promise you that it will leave you changed. Yes, if the, the thing is I thought about there is it wouldn't if you were God and looking down uh, wouldn't you have expected the defeated people to pick on the things the ones that are lower than them and this all this nastiness in the south I, that doesn't condone it at all but if I were God I would have expected that to happen human beings are very predictable in that regard yes sad to say which is, again, why for, for the song and both its ascendant uh, melody and for the, for the lyrics that it, it runs counter to that human trait. Yes, Terry. Um, Andrew, I was really interested in your um, quote from Antonine Dvorak. 
And the New World Symphony was actually written in 1893 when he came here in 1892 to 1895. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, but it's amazing. And I can't wait to listen to it again, to now listen to it thinking of what he's saying here, that the Negro melodies should be the foundation of all music in America. In, in, in 1892, he, he was born in what was then the Austrian Empire, it's now Czechoslovakia, outside of Prague, and he came, um, I believe there was an exposition going on, and also Chicago one or what, in 1892. Um, he originally came for that, and then he got a sponsor, uh, because he was a rising composer and conductor. Um, he got a New York sponsor, and so for the next three years, he was here in the, in the States. And within months of his arrival, um, he had experienced um, Negro spirituals and other sacred music, church music, field music, and for him, it was eye-opening and, and mind-blowing. And in 1892, he, he wrote an op-ed, he actually wrote a series of articles saying that whether we realize it or not here in America, that we have our own homegrown, authentic, uh, native music, and that is wh what has come from the, the fields of the South. Um, and so for him, it, it was a transformative awareness um, as a, a, a musician of great, great renown. Um, it was not a popular message, perhaps, uh, at the time, in 1892, uh, for some European uh, musician to come and tell us what is good music and to say that it's coming from that corner of our, our society. But nonetheless, he was rather strong in his opinion and prescient, one would think. Well, it's uh, about 17 after, so I, I appreciate everybody. Um, apologies for missing a segment in the slideshow. Figure that one out. So thank you very much. Um, yeah.